Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more on Walter's music. Devine Dial, thank you for managing WPVMFM in Asheville. And Robin Collier, thank you for managing KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, in Taos, New Mexico. If you would like to reach me, Nave at jamesnave.com, I would love to hear from you. And I'd like to remind you that we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you'd like to improve your writing chops, wallow in the imaginative process a bit, we are always there on Saturday morning between at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time. And we do a, a, a workshop that the it's always free. The door is always open. You can find that and more at imaginativestorm.com. So today I have a new friend on. We haven't met in person. We have met on Zoom, and she invited me to be on her radio show. And so in return, I invited her to be on Twice Five Miles Radio. Her name is Gail Hulnick, and Gail is an author. She writes mystery stories. She also does travel writing, and she's in the business of all things books, storytelling, generative work. She's been doing it a long time. She has, I wouldn't say countless books to her credit, <laughs> but she has more than one. So Gail, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you so much, Nave. It's a pleasure to be here. And I would like to start by asking you to reflect on the word journey. What does the word journey mean to you? And why is that something that's worth exploring? Oh, well, Laura, if I may be glib for just a moment, one of my favorite bands, <laughs> Start With Journey. Uh, but no, in terms of my writing career and the work that I do, life is a journey. I have been on a journey for many years with a lot of switchbacks and stops and starts to get me to where I am now. But I was thinking about this. It's interesting you asked the question because I was thinking about that famous saying, life is all about the journey, not the destination. And I was thinking about why is it that up until 10 years ago, perhaps 15 years ago, I couldn't really get anything finished in my creative career. I was a great starter. I had lots of ideas and I would get started and then I would run out of gas. And as I thought about it, I thought it's because somehow the switch flipped for me at some point about 10 years ago where I realized it's not just about the journey. It is also about the destination. And I had to think, you know, I enjoy writing. I enjoy writing as a process and an activity, but I really enjoy finishing something. And so I have to think about the destination as well as the journey. What was it that sparked you in the direction of completing the journey, the destination, going to the end of things? How did you engage that? Did something drop out of the sky? You see a shooting star? Did you hear a dog bark over the ridge and find inspiration in the sound of the dog's howl? I, I, it wasn't something falling out of the sky or a dog barking. I think perhaps it was just readiness. 
you know, and I had lived with writing, been trying to improve and so on for years, read about three or 400 books. Uh, and then somehow when I was in my 50s, I think I was just ready. I had enough experience. I had done enough other careers and other things that I felt compelled to actually put this down. It was on paper a lot already, but to share it with other people. And I really believe that's a big part of, of what I learned and, and came to understand is that writing as an activity for yourself is, is a value. But until there is a, at least one other person reading it, hopefully a lot of other people reading it, but at least one other person reading it, it's not complete. And so I wanted to finish that loop. I think I was just ready. I met a person who was very encouraging of my work, and he supported it and was very interested. And then I also, in terms of coming full circle, I went back to school. So I was in my late 50s, and I went back and did an MFA in creative writing. Uh, that had been my interest ever since I was about 10 years old. I actually started... When I finished high school, I was headed for a BFA. That's what I thought I was going to do. I wrote poetry. I wrote novels. Didn't share them with, well, I shared some of the poems, but not the novels with anybody. I applied to university to go to college, and you had to be vetted in order to get into the program. So I had to submit a portfolio. And this was many years ago. So unlike now, where people apply to college and university about 12 or 24 months before they're actually going. In those days, it was spring. It was May or whatever. I was graduating high school. I wanted to go to university in the fall. I wanted to be in the creative writing faculty or department. And I submitted the portfolio. And I got back an envelope through the snail mail. Uh, it was just drenched in red ink. The professor had just scribbled all over it and written all kinds of comments. And I was mortified, more than mortified. I was completely devastated. I didn't have much confidence as 18. I didn't have much confidence at that time in my own ability to write. I was just devastated. The other ironic thing is I got in. So then shortly after that, I got a note saying, yes, you're accepted into the program, but I didn't want to go. I did not want to go. That was the end of my creative writing career at that point, full stop. So then there I was, and I was in my mid-50s. I'd raised my children. They had wings of their own, and they were on their way. And I thought, what do I really want to do? I wonder if I could go back to creative writing. I had more confidence by then. Maybe I could go back to it now. So I, I think that is why I started to think more of, of, of finishing things and actually reaching a destination rather than being on a perpetual journey. I want to come back for a moment to your graduation time and deciding not to go. It was really interesting in your storytelling just now. You went from, well, I didn't go to college. And when I was in my 50s, I went back to college again. What kind of choices did you make early on in your life after you graduated from high school based on what that teacher did with all that nasty red ink? I did something practical. So that was one of the other inputs I was receiving as an 18-year-old was, well, that's all very well that you write poems, but what are you going to do to make a living? Another big part of my psyche and what I cared about at that time as well was I wanted to be self-supporting. I wanted to make my own mark in the world. I was very much influenced by all of the feminist writing at the time and Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan and so on. So I wanted to be a woman writing. Meanwhile, I was getting input from major people in my life saying, yes, but how are you going to put food on the table? What are you going to do? So I went into journalism. 
at that time, it's, like it's not a great path right now, but at that time they did pay uh, people and it was a viable career choice and, and way to go. So I went and did a, a BA and then I did a master's in journalism and I went on and I was a reporter, I did a, a broadcast reporter for a lot of years. I've, I've done a, um, I counted it up the other day, I've had nine different careers or different things I've done. So I went off and I was a television reporter for a while. I was a radio show host for quite a few years, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Then I became a mother. I consider that a career. So that was a full-time career for a number of years. I still wrote. I still had my my notebooks that I filled with handwritten this and that. I was living their lives, I think, for a certain period of time rather than my own. I did the part-time things while they were growing up. So once it was no longer full-time in the sense of diapers and, and uh, oh, they might die in five minutes. I have to make sure they're still breathing once that stage is over. Then I was doing I did some part-time freelance nonfiction things. I was an editor for some time and editing other people's work. Gradually, my way into some consulting work as well. Because of the radio and television background, I had a lot of comfort. I had a high comfort level with presenting. And so I found that there were a lot of people who were coming to me anyway and saying, you know, how do you like get over the fact that you can't breathe in the five minutes before you have to speak and you're just dying to kind of escape out the back door and wondering if anyone would know. So I help people a lot with um, calming themselves about uh, about public speaking and presentations. And then shortly after that, uh, so I did that all through the kids' high school years and so on. And then once, as I say, once they were on their way, but what do I really want to do? Uh, and it was getting back to creative writing. So that's where that started. I'm curious, you say creative writing, you wanted to get back to it. Why is why did why do you consider journalism in another category? And the reason I ask that is because I've always admired journalists. I mean, I think my goodness, look at how fantastic some of these things are. Dexter Filkins writes for the New York Times or used to write for the New York Times. I think he writes now for the New Yorker. Terrific journalist, and yet his work is so exquisite. So why why divide it up like that? And this would be a question you could answer for yourself, not for anybody else, of course. For me, at least, it was two very different disciplines. And while I was, while I totally agree with you that journalism is a creative endeavor, and some people take it to the level of art and the use of language that some writers are able to infuse as they're writing journalism is an art, just like writing a novel or a poem. But I think where I made the distinction is that journalism requires adhering to the truth, if you like. So for me, that was my goal and my uh, guiding star and so on with journalism. Very difficult because at least and things have changed an awful lot as well. But 30 years ago, 35 years ago, when I was getting started and getting going in journalism, objectivity, uh, if, if we all have biases, but we need to understand them and explore them and then put them to one side. And you have to be well-educated enough and intelligent enough to be able to hold two thoughts at once. That sort of, yes, I may believe in such and such, but right now I'm interviewing somebody else who believes the opposite. And it's my job to be a conduit for them to speak to the world. That is what I see journalism as being, is that we're there both to record history. The first rough draft of history is, is what we call it. Again, the truth is 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 central and is vital. 
creative writing and why I liked, I enjoyed moving into that. And, and it's interesting, my, my mysteries that I write now, are, I call them media mysteries. I've done four of them. I'm working on the fifth and they all take place within one of the media. So the first one is television news. Still dip my toe back into journalism with some of the, the plot things that were happening. With creative writing and fiction, I get to make stuff up. But I was one of those journalists who wouldn't do that. They, they make the news themselves, the kinds of journalists who make stuff up. You have to hold tight to the truth and hold tight to the, the ethics, very much so when you're a journalist, that when you're a fiction writer, you can it's freer. You can just be more free. Well, that is quite true. And of course, as a journalist, if the bus was red, then when you reported the bus on the corner, the bus was red. And Absolutely. the number was 51, not 532. A lot of people talk about telling the truth. And I think that's a terrific thing to do. Can you give some reflections on the difference between truth-telling as a journalist, the bus is read, and truth-telling as a creative writer? Yes, and certainly as a creative writer, truth is also what you are. Perhaps it is a larger truth, a bigger truth, a more fundamental truth. The meaning of life, the meaning of interactions between people, human psychology, human behavior. If that's the sort of truth that you want to express in your writing, then I think it's not that you have to get into writing fiction or pursuing creative writing, but you can't try to do that while you're doing journalism. I guess that's I come back around to the more practical thing. If you're writing a screenplay or a novel, you start where you start. This is the story I want to tell. A journalist who's sent out on an assignment, no matter how senior or how experienced, whoever, we all had an editor. We all had a news director. You always have someone who is ideally, and again, I've not been in, in, in a newsroom in 20 years, so it might not be the same. But at that time, you had to answer to somebody. In that way, the truth that you're after, if what you want to do is write about big truths, you can't let that work its way into your journalism. And an editor will grab you before you know it and say, look, you were sent down to find out what's going to happen at City Hall when the bus strike happens, so stick to buses. I don't want a paragraph in there with your views or how you feel or that you once upon a time met an important labor leader, and here's what happened. You have to stay focused an awful lot more in journalism. And so again, the, the freedom that's in creative writing, I think. I think I would have trouble staying focused on the bus being red because I do tend to drift off the porch and wander around <laughs> in the fireflies right. in the summertime. You might find it dull. A lot of longtime journalists try something else for a while. They may come back to it, but they wander into public relations or they start their own business. And especially if they were specialists, if they you know, had covered something for 10 years, you watch someone else do it for 10 years and you think, well, why don't I try that? I've learned an awful lot. The boundaries of journalism do chafe a lot of writers and thinkers. Shifting just a little bit and returning back to a comment you made about helping people present their work in public, could you speak a bit about that? I would love to hear your take on the philosophy you have around what it means to present work, to be on stage and to in interact with the audience. Well, I did a little bit of training and help within the broadcasting station I worked. But most of the time, the people that I worked with were not 
professional presenters. This was something that they had to do because of the work that they did. Coached a lot of architects, engineers, doctors, people like that, who might be just brilliant in their field, partly to translate it into plain language. That was a challenge for them. And also just to handle their own stress about what they had to do. And so I think that one of the first and most important things whenever anybody has to speak publicly and do a presentation is to understand that the audience is on their side. The audience wants them to succeed. And you do tend to walk out there on stage and, and well, maybe you don't actually, I'd like to ask you about this in a minute. But a lot of people, that sea of faces looking at them and this sense of like, I know what my speech was. I know I have to make these 12 points or whatever, however complex it is. Um, oh, I forgot point number 11. And so I'm messing up here, I'm making a mistake, and the, and the second track or third track of their brain gets going, they start crit criticizing themselves. Before they know it, they've lost it. And you have people prepare what they need to say, you go over and over and over and practice, practice, practice. And one of the biggest things that people do that I worked a lot with in helping is they had this finished speech in their mind. The audience has no idea there was a point number 11. They have no idea something was missed at all. So you need to get your, and now I'm talking as if I'm coaching, but you need to get your mind off what you know and what you think you're going to say and just put yourself in their shoes and they're sitting there listening and what kind of experience are they getting? And that's what your job is, is to deliver ideally a feeling to them. Your job is not to deliver some speech that you wrote over the past well, six months or however long they worked on it. It's a lot of the way I went at things is sort of to help people just try to relax. But I think some people do not have that stress. I wonder, did you ever have that stress? I mean, I've heard some of your performance poetry and so on, and you're so comfortable with it. Did you have to overcome any kind of stress or nerves about presenting? I absolutely did. When I first presented or performed two years prior to the performance, I'd been in the storytelling community a bit. I'd been to Jonesboro, Tennessee, the National Storytelling Festival a couple of times. And I'd seen the storytellers on stage, had no idea how they did it. And I thought, well, maybe telling poems would be an easier way to go than trying to think of things on stage because I just can't think of anything. I freeze. I, 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 I just got really confused and start to you know, do all the things you do when you panic. My business partner at the time, Bob Falls, and I memorized two hours worth of poems. We spent four months rehearsing that stuff. Started in May, and we had scheduled a show for 15th of August. This was 1984. And we worked five days a week rehearsing these pieces over and over and over and over. We had a director, and neither Bob nor I knew what we were really doing. I'd never actually been on stage looking out at an, at an audience. And what you said early on in your advice to the listeners, you get up there and you start to look around and you think these eyes all look different and everybody has a sweater and a, a jacket and a shirt and oh my God, well, there's a beard and then there's some short hair and long hair and, and it starts to crumble. That's what happened for me. What saved me, not that I got over my early nervousness, I'd rehearsed it so much, I had a lot of rehearsal to fall back on. Mm -hmm. So I fumbled around, we overdid it, we compensated, we did everything you could possibly think of to get through the show and everybody liked it and it was fine. And I went off on a career as a performance poet, a spoken word artist, and we started traveling around the country 
performing poetry as theater for school students. And for the first year in front of those school students with the teachers looking, I would get migraine headaches. I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know what to say. And I didn't know how to say it. So I would go from one poem to the next and, and nobody noticed. You were right. Nobody cared. Fumble a line or two here and there, fumble the whole thing. And they're just glad you're there and the students are paying attention and they know you're going to get them back to class on time. Mm-hmm. And after maybe two years of running show after show after show, day after day after day for months after months, hundreds and hundreds of them in the early days and then thousands as it went on, there's a point where the presentation space starts to feel like your living room. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, all is well in the kingdom. And the way you know that is you start to understand that the people are there for themselves, the audience members. They're there for, for themselves. They're there to enjoy. They're giving their time, which is finite, for you, for the moment, for them. And all you have to do, as you said, just be there. They will embrace you. It takes a long time to understand that. It's a proof of concept idea. You do it long enough, and you start to see similarities between each show. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon, what you notice is people are just happy you're there. They're happy to be there. Just relax, say a few things, say thank you, and step off. At first, it's really hard. And if somebody's never done it before, even with coaches, it's a deep breath when you first go out. And it's not about talent. It's about just building up the momentum and, and being in the living room, which is the stage. And everybody listening, if you've ever lived in a living room for any length of time, or if you have a comfortable place that you go to or live in, then you know how long it takes to start feeling like you are really home. I picked up a really good tip from a comedian that I interviewed uh, one time on the, the podcast that I do, the Brainwave podcast is focused on the charmed moment. What is that moment that a person has the creative spark and how do they go from that idea to a finished piece. And I've done a lot of different people. People make glass art, people who write songs, people who write novels, filmmakers, and so on. But this one is is standing out of my mind as a comedian. How do you be funny? How do you recognize that something is funny or is not funny? And when do you get just that brilliant line? Does it, again, as you were asking the question earlier, does it come out of the blue or where, where does that come from? And then what if it comes to you, if say it's improv, or whatever circumstances, but where you're with an audience. And his tip about the audience and the sea of faces and the who's got a sweater and so on is that he said, you know, when I started, I would see that sea of faces. I would always notice the one person who wasn't laughing. I could be in front of 2,000 people and everybody would be laughing. I'd know my material was working, but there'd be one guy sitting in the back row, his arms crossed, and he'd be glaring at me. And it's like, why isn't he laughing? He said, I had to learn to forget about that one person and just go through a whole process. Maybe he had a fight with somebody this morning. Maybe he couldn't find a parking space. Maybe he thinks the tickets are overpriced. Whatever it is, he's not the person I should be looking at. He says, so you look out into that sea of faces. You look for the friendliest face you can see. Plant somebody if you need to and tell your jokes to that person. And he he said, once I was able to get past the performance sphere and look at one person, then creativity would flow. 
and then I would be okay. He's exactly right. Last night I did a performance of A Child's Christmas in Wales here in Taos. I had a person to my right and a person to my left and somebody in the back. I had identified sympathetic. You could feel the energy. And I would mark my movement with those people. And I would nod to that person. And then I would nod to the one next to them. And it's a build throughout the audience that allows advocacy from the people. It's an invitation when you nod to them. A good example of that for people listening, if you want to see a master at work, if you have a chance to watch one of Frank Sinatra's concerts, just Uh watch the very beginning of it. When he walks out on the stage, and you can get Frank Sinatra in concert on YouTube, he always walks out, looks great, beautiful, nice tuxedo, as as you might remember him if you've seen one of those videos. But he walks out, and the first thing he does is nod to the audience, thank you, bows to the conductor, thank you, waves to the band, thank you, thank you, waves to the staff, thank you, thank you. And then he turns to the audience again, thank you. He starts to say it, thank you, thank you, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. So nice to be here tonight. I've got you under my skin. And within a minute, you forget it's Frank on the stage and you think you're singing because he invites you in by acknowledging your presence. Mm -hmm. And then when you do that, you do have an atmosphere that will allow spontaneity to rise from the professionalism, from all of the practice. We talk about improvisational work a lot, and people will see me on stage, oh, oh, you can just do any kind of improv, and I can't really, I'm not an improvisational artist. I can play the moment, not because I'm dramatically improvisational. I just have enough in my experience background to be able to piece a few things together as I go along. And know that by piecing them together in various combinations, it works. But it takes a while to get there. So people who are just beginning to do it, that is, go on stage, it's really important to stay simple, to stay in your own style. Check that mic. Make sure it works. And if it doesn't, find somebody to help you make it work. And to stay focused on your style. And don't try to swing from the rafters like some trapeze artist under the big top. (laughs) there's that wonderful quote from Oscar Wilde, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. Oh my goodness. I love that. So let's make a a shift even more deeply into the work you do. You write mysteries. You do travel writing as well. I am curious, how do you figure out what kind of mystery story to tell? Tell us about mystery. Why is that such an intriguing subject for you it is what i like to read for one thing so in the fiction area over the years i've read many many of the the great novelists and taking you into the world and introducing you to people that you'd never meet anywhere i mean i'm I'm a bookworm a bookish famous quotes but you can live a million lifetimes if you read a lot of and then when it came to the point where i was starting to write some of my own fiction i tried other types as well and experimented with this and that But I wanted to do what I admired so much. I think that's what it was. I admired the books that they'd done. uh, And so I started to to get into that. And it actually was a bit of a switch because when I went and did my MFA, it was very much a literary, uh, literary fiction sort of program. And everyone was writing not 
genre fiction, as they call it, not mysteries or romances. Or But then you find out, I've discovered in the years since I finished the MFA, which is about 10 years ago now, I guess, there's a little romance in everything, almost, unless you're unless it's waiting for Godot or something. But there's a little romance on almost everything you'd read. There's a little mystery. And deciding how to define something as a pure this is a mystery novel rather than this is an adventure novel or this is a thriller novel or this is a romantic novel can be very difficult. The lines can be very blurry. And so I, of all the the types of stories I found myself drawn to, I like the ones where it's not clear what's going to happen. There are some fuzzy edges. By 10 minutes in, can I guess who it is, who done it? Or what's what's the actual mystery going to be? And I'm I'm always very uh, happy when I don't guess. I feel that a very clever, skilled person has taken me on this story ride. So that's why mysteries. What I like having done to me, so I like to do it to other people. When you first started to go in that direction after having read all the work, what kind of discoveries did you have to make in terms of the structure of the book to keep you moving? And did you veer off to the left, to the right, get lost in the weeds? as you were trying to write your first novels? Uh, the first ones were very difficult. And the, the first one actually is called The Lion's Share of the Airtime. And it was a mystery about a young TV journalist who's a very close friend and mentor in her television station. Actually a classic plot because even J.K. Rowling, uh, under her pseudonym of Robert Galbraith, is, is the same plot in her first book of, uh, is it a suicide or is it a murder? And everyone was saying it's a suicide, she doesn't believe that this close friend of hers did that or would do that. So that was the point I started from. I also started a lot of ideas coming from the headlines or whatever, but there was a story of a person falling off a high ledge. Did they fall? Were they pushed? Did they dive? And so that was the thing I started with. Twelve years later, I only typed the end with a lot of drafts. Because one other thing I have learned, and I, I, I bet that a lot of writers listening uh, to your podcast would agree, the book that you write today is not really the book that you will write in 12 months. And so something that takes 12 years to write or 15 years to write, you are a different person by the time you finished that 15th draft. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that's perhaps part of the process. And some people do, they write two books in their entire lifetime or whatever it is. But just to recognize that things that seem brilliant to you when you were 25 will not seem quite so brilliant when you're 55. That one took a very long time to work out. And then the second one was called A Bird in the Sand. I also uh, have moved quite a bit. I don't think I could ever write fantasy or science fiction because I maybe not enough imagination, I don't know, but I find I'm inspired by wherever I am living. And so I had moved from Vancouver, Canada, which was where Lineshare was set, to Savannah, Georgia, which is where I did A Bird in the Sand. And it was a mystery, uh, not murder, but had to do with theft. And it was a, a kind of a caper thing where three very valuable artifacts disappear from museums and from a movie set. And Savannah is quite a thriving movie location one of the artifacts was being used as a prop on the movie set and then got pinched and there was so there's all kinds of suspicion of who was taking these things and why i think what i learned as i went into that one that one only took about six months to read to write from 12 years to six months i think i'd learned a few things by then the third one was set in florida which is where i moved next and is called sleeping dogs lie and then the fourth most recent one is called Kangaroo Court, where Sleeping Dogs Lie was set in a community newspaper. Kangaroo Court was set in social media. I had to catch up. 
And so as I was learning all this, another thing that has happened to me as a writer, I was spending so much time learning about these things because I wanted to be involved with Facebook and I wanted to be involved with Instagram because all of my friends were doing it. I was learning all these things. I wanted to put it to another purpose and to another use. So I'll put this into the novel. And then all of the research that I've done and all of the learning that I've done about how Instagram works, I can and use it in this way as well. It's another another sort of mystery. It's a, it is not a murder, but it is a killing. Someone's reputation is being killed on social media. Coming back around to your initial question, I guess what, what I've learned about mystery over the time is, for me at least, I'm one of those writers who likes to have setting be almost like a character in the book, wherever I am is going to, going to come through, uh, to try and, and develop the suspects and develop the characters to the point where someone reading it at home is thinking, oh, I think it's the babysitter. Oh, I think it might be the husband. It's the husband. That, I think, is part of the fun of reading fiction, reading mystery. But staying on the idea of the mystery, you mentioned you lived in Florida and Vancouver, and you've moved around a bit here and there. You wrote a book about traveling to Europe. The mystery there was, could I live in Europe? And you went and you looked around, you went to Paris, you went for the mystery that exists in all of our lives. Where do I place myself on this earth? So what was it like for you exploring that, that mystery on a personal note? It was it was very interesting and and very important in my life. You're right. I almost can't do anything without putting a question into it, which that maybe goes back to the journalism days as well. But I couldn't just go to Paris and eat well and drink well and sightsee well. I had to, there had to be a question to it. I didn't have the idea or the plan for the book before we went, but almost within days of arriving and being there, uh, I was thinking gee, this is fabulous. It was about my third or fourth time to Europe, but my first time as a more of an adult, thinking about could I live here? I was ready for a change of where should we live next? And we have a lot of freedom, so could do that. Everybody has that kind of freedom. You just make a choice with one thing. You, you have to decide to leave something else out is what you have to do. Think about could I live here? And, and, and in the end, the conclusion was no which was also a bit of, I don't know if I actually finished the book in that way. Maybe you should go back and do a coda or revisit it. What I found, we were to a lot of places, and we were to Ireland and Spain and Italy and France, Luxembourg, which is a lovely country, Switzerland, which is another fabulous place. On one level, I could live in any one of these places because I can adapt to anything. But will I pick it? Will I choose it? And in the end, it was the pull of home, for one thing, of North America. I just, I, I missed things very much. And the other big thing was language. And this, I think, is something different for Europeans in North America. I studied a little French in high school and in university, but not really enough to get by. When I would try to picture living in France into the future, France and Italy sort of came down to the wire as the two front runners at the end. We actually um, studied Italian for quite some time. And set aside time for it every day and tried to learn Italian. Didn't go well. I don't know. I, well, they do say that children learn languages more quickly and the retention is much better and so on. And when I imagined and tried to visualize what it would be like to live in Italy, unable to understand the language without, you know, making really good eye contact with people and having my phone translator in my hand. And I'm just such a word person that I think that not being in the country 
of my first language, English, would be very difficult. And then as one gets older, just the comfort level that you want and that sense of home, you know, whether it's medical issues or whatever it might be, but to be in a world where everyone around me is speaking Italian, it just seemed to me it would be such a perpetual outsider barrier that I just couldn't get past it. That makes sense. I've known a lot of people in Paris. I've been going to Paris since 1985. I often talk about it on this show. My buddies lived in the same spot for since 1980, 300 square foot flat on Rue Dauphine. And he's Dutch. He speaks perfect American. And I've been going in and out of Paris every year since 1985. So I've gotten used to the neighborhood. Yeah. If if I had lots of resources, lots of backup, it would be easy to live in Paris. It is a demanding place if you come with rose-colored glasses and think, oh, I can just live here. Very, very difficult. There's a woman I'm, I know, her name is Adrienne Leeds, and she sells real estate in Paris. She's from New Orleans. She does really well with her work. And she publishes a terrific newsletter all about what is required for you to come live in France. And she isn't a journalist. And yet, if you read her newsletter, you would think this woman is a journalist. Mm-hmm. It's all about finance, all about rentals, very well documented. And so you, you're quite right. If you're engaged in the English language and you're steeped in Americana, it would be difficult to just up and go to another country. You know, I love Paris in the springtime, but in December, it's it can be kind of rainy and bleak. Mm-hmm. So you have to love melancholy as much as you do, as you, as you love the flowers, in order to really stay there all year round. Mo- you know, moving and changing home has its appeal. And, and I do have a quite a, a nomadic streak. And I have enjoyed all the moving that I've been doing in the last few years. You have to you have to make the effort and you have to you know meet new people and you have to try to make new friends and so on. And you still, thanks to the technology that we have in the past 20 years, 10 years is just amazing the way we can keep in touch with people that we've known for 30 or 40 years. But at the same time, there's nothing like physically being with people in a room. When you move to a new place, start putting down those roots and start sowing those seeds and language is very important. I do admire everyone who has done it, though. And as you know, I'm not. This is no not a discovery that I'm the only one who's ever made. I mean, many people have moved, whether to France or to Spain. The motivation is there. There's some reason that they override or overcome the bureaucracy. I mean, I did quite a bit of research before I folded the tent of the plan. Uh, the bureaucracy that's involved in trying to move to France or Paris as a, a newcomer is huge. So you'd have to want to badly enough to overcome a lot of these things. And in the end, I just wasn't there. Yeah, And I've never had that problem because I've always had a key to that apartment and I just come and go as a tourist and it's no big deal. So yeah. I don't have, I've never had to bother with that, but I do know it's complicated if you wanted to get in into the soup. I know another fellow there, we were having lunch not long ago, a few months ago. And he said, well, you know, I've been here 30 years and I've I've always kept my driver's license. Ah. He said, I, I just, if somebody stops me, I say, well, I'm just a tourist. So <laughs> there are lots of little ways to, to slide around. So as we move toward our bit of time together, I would like to ask you to reflect on where you are headed with your podcast, your writing, 
all the other work you do, because I know you interview a lot of people. You have a very active podcast with lots of terrific folks on all the time. So tell us about that so folks can follow you and learn more from what you're doing. Is called the Brainwave Podcast with Gail Holnick. And if people are searching, it's on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, uh, Buzzsprout was a good place to find it. You need to put my name in there as well, because as I found out with the Brainwave, and you name things, and then three months later, you find out that it takes people pretty much directly to a neurology podcast out of uh, Johns Hopkins or someplace. <laughs> yeah. So the Brainwave, not literally speaking, but the Brainwave in the sense of the charm creative moment. And I actually have been away from it. I come back to it. Uh, I did two years really solid and weekly, which, as you know, is, is a, a busy schedule. I wanted to do it in a professional kind of manner. Some, some people do podcasts and sort of, I feel like it's Friday night and I feel like doing it. So I'll turn on my computer and make a podcast episode randomly. In it. But I've done it weekly and it's done in a professional way. And I got, not I wouldn't say burned out. That's perhaps exaggerating. But I got to a point where... The time required, I was putting in probably three full days a week on the podcast and the writing. I have tons of ideas and many titles and many you know core plot ideas, but nothing was actually getting written. And so I thought I have to pull back on this. Plus, we were moving from southwest Florida to western Washington and we decided to do a level good road trip. So we decided to drive and we drove southwest Florida to Texas. And I thought I would have a little experience of Texas. I very much like to go and be in a place that I read a lot about or, or see on TV because I think the experience is so different. So we spent a, a full month in Texas. Also, I didn't really want to get to the north until April or May or so. So it was the winter. So we spent the rest of the winter in the south. We took our time and drove for about five months before we got to the coast. At that time, it was not terribly convenient I tried for a while trying to find places to do the weekly podcast interviews, but it was difficult to do. So I just put it on hiatus and haven't done it for eight months. So come back to it now. And I'm just having a wonderful time. Just a blast. I, th I think so often that, that if it, whatever art it is that you make, if you find yourself burned out with it or your, your creative flow is, is stalled, take a break. You know, it, 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 don't quit. But do take a rest. So I uh, the whole time, and my husband said, "Can you quit podcasting?" Well, I haven't quit anything. I'm I'm taking a rest. So I started back up again, and I'm really enjoying it. So it's going forward. The podcast is going to be uh, a big part of of what I'm doing. Uh, but the novels are still in flow. So I'm on the fifth one of the media mysteries, and this one is New York Publishing, uh, and it's called Monkey Me, Monkey You, and it's about three quarters finished. The sixth one, I've, radio was where I started uh, and where probably most of my experiences anyway, I held it off until the sixth book. So until I felt like my fiction writing abilities were up to it, I have a, a novel all about radio days in the plan for next, for 2024. That's terrific. And you do a lot of your own marketing or how do you get all this work out? I do. I have a little publishing company. So in addition to my own writing, and I'm online as gailholmick.com, I also started a little publishing company when I first started writing. It's called windwardgroup.com. And it uh, and then over the years, beyond my own things, I've also published a few other authors as well. I kept it small on purpose. I just want to sort of do things I really believe in and really enjoy. We 
contract out to editors and to cover designers, to marketing consultants, just to kind of get a few sets of hands on everything. Um, so yes, so that that is the way that, that sort of I market to the publishing company and, and the consultant helps a lot. Well, Gail, we have arrived at one destination, which is the end of the show. Although, of course, there are many destinations <laughs> and many yes. starts. So thank you ever so much for taking the time out of your day to be with us. Thank you for inviting me, Navi. And it's been a great pleasure to meet you over Zoom. And perhaps at some point, maybe I'll maybe I'll consider Taos, New Mexico at some point. I've been to Taos, been through Taos on a road trip, been to Asheville a number of times. You live in two very beautiful places. I do indeed. And this show airs in both places. And I'm happy to have you share your voice on this show with folks in Asheville and also folks in Taos. And then I put it on SoundCloud so people can go there and listen to it whenever they want wherever they happen to be in the world. So we'll see you next time, Gail. Thanks, Nafi. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Gail Holnick. I hope you found Gail's thoughts about starting and completing things helpful. You can keep it simple. You can start and complete something like making tea or making coffee in the morning. And something to keep in mind, you may say, I don't start and finish things very well. And yet we all start and finish things. That's part of life. Every day you begin something and every day you finish it. Now, you might not start and finish everything you do, which is also true. I've started plenty of things that I haven't finished. That said, I start a lot of things and I finish them, like this show every week. And on that note, I have about 10 more minutes before the top of the hour. And since this show is airing over the Christmas weekend on WPVM-FM in Asheville and KCEI-FM in Taos, I would like to offer you some poetry with a Christmas theme to go out on. So here's Christmas Trees by Robert Frost, a Christmas circular letter. The city had withdrawn into itself and left at last the country to the country, when between whirls of snow not come to lie and whirls of foliage not yet laid, there drove a stranger to our yard, who looked the city, yet did in country fashion, in that there he sat, and waited till he drew us out, a buttoning coats, to ask him who he was. He proved to be the city, come again to look for something it had left behind, and could not do without to keep its Christmas. He asked if I would sell my Christmas trees, my woods the young fir balsams like a place where houses all our churches and have spires. I hadn't thought of them as Christmas trees. I doubt if I was tempted for a moment to sell them off their feet, to go in cars and leave the slope behind the house all bare, where the sun shines now no warmer than the moon. I'd hate to have them know it if I was. Yet more, I'd hate to hold my trees except as others hold theirs, or refuse them, Beyond the time of profitable growth, the trial by market, everything must come to. I dallied so much with the thought of selling. Then, whether from mistaken courtesy and fear of seeming short of speech, or whether from hope of hearing good of what was mine, I said, Well, there aren't enough to be worthwhile. I could soon tell you how many they would cut you'd let me look them over. Well, you could look, but don't expect I'm going to let you have them pasture they spring in, some in clumps too close that lob each other off of boughs, but not a few quite solitary, and having equal boughs all round and round. The latter he nodded, yes, to, 
or pause to say beneath some lovelier one, with a buyer's moderation, Well, that would do. I thought so too, but wasn't there to say so. We climbed the pasture on the south, crossed over, and came down on the north. He said, A thousand. A thousand Christmas trees? At what a piece? He felt some need of softening that to me. A thousand Christmas trees would come to thirty dollars. Then I was certain I'd never meant to let him have them. Never show surprise. But thirty dollars seemed so small beside the extent of pasture I should strip. Three cents. But that was all they figured out a piece. Three cents. So small beside the dollar friends I should be writing to within the hour would pay in cities for good trees like those. Regular vestry trees. Whole Sunday schools could hang enough on to pick off enough. A thousand Christmas trees I didn't know I had. Worth three cents more to give away than sell. As may be shown by a simple calculation. Too bad I couldn't lay one in a letter. I can't help wishing I could send you one in wishing you herewith. A Merry Christmas. And that was Christmas Trees, a Christmas circular letter by Robert Frost, which he wrote in 1916. At the time, a postage stamp was three cents. His Christmas trees were three cents. So instead of putting a Christmas tree in the envelope and mailing it, he includes the story of the salesman showing up, wanting to buy all of his Christmas trees. So the story goes into the letter rather than the Christmas trees. But hey, the imagination lets the Christmas trees rise from the circular letter when his friends read it in the cities. And now we have time for one more poem. This one's by Clement Clark Moore, titled A Visit from St. Nicholas. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, wild visions of sugar-plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief, and I in my cap, had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave a luster of midday to objects below, when what to my wondering eyes did appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer, with a little old driver so lively and quick I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donder and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky, so up to the housetop the coursers they flew, with the sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas too. Then in a twinkling I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof, and as I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled. His dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, 
and the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. So there you go. That was a visit from St. Nicholas, or Twas the Night Before Christmas by Clement Clark Moore. And before that, Christmas Trees, a Christmas circular letter by Robert Frost. And one more little Christmas note before I say goodbye. Years ago, back in the early 90s, when Alan Wolfe was the MC for the Poetry Slam and other events at the Green Door in downtown Asheville, Every Christmas season, Alan would perform "'Twas the Night Before Christmas Went All Through the House," a visit from St. Nicholas by Clement Clark Moore. He would perform it wrapped in Christmas lights, and he would glow in different parts of his body by way of the Christmas lights as he was reciting the poem. It was a great, great fun. He would spin around and glow and say, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas Went All Through the House." Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. So we didn't have Christmas lights, and we didn't have Alan today spinning around on the stage at the Green Door all those years ago, but we did have a visit from St. Nicholas and a Christmas letter. And I hope you enjoyed both of those poems, and I would like to say thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more on Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM. FM and Robin Collier, thank you for managing Cultural Energy Radio, KCEI-FM, out of Taos, New Mexico. If you'd like to reach me, Nave, at jamesnave.com, I would love to hear from you. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I'd like to remind you that we are sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing chops and participate in a free workshop, a workshop that's been going on now for almost three years, my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, and I hosted every Saturday, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time. It lasts an hour and 15 minutes, and during that time, we show an image, we generate words, we write something for 10 minutes about the image, and then we read the work aloud and have a discussion afterwards. It's really fun. We enjoy doing it, and everyone on the call enjoys it as well. So, as the year turns from 2023 to 2024, and we say goodbye to our holiday season, maybe you'll join us in the new year and start some writing of your own. Tell some of those stories that you have queued up in your psychology. ImaginativeStorm.com for more on that information. And if you like writing, you might want to check out a project I'm working on with Lake Eden Retreat. 
Lake Eden Retreat is the location for the Leaf Festival. I'm hosting a week-long writing event, the Lake Eden Writing Retreat. It's going to be a lot of fun if you'd like to know more about that. LakeEdenWritingRetreat.com is where you'll find that information. And so on that note, once again, thank you so much for tuning in to Twice 5 Miles Radio. I hope you have a good Christmas holiday weekend and a great rest of the holiday season as you move on toward the new year. And maybe, if I'm lucky, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. Here's a little holiday treat from the great jazz singer Marvin Parks, who's based in Paris. Christmas to 